Hi everyone. Our guest for today needs hardly any introduction for anyone who's interested in environment and development. I'm delighted that Eric Solheim is with us today. Uh, you will probably know him as a former Norwegian Minister for International Development. He was also Minister for Environment and he was uh, the Executive Director of UN Environment or UNEP. And he's now active for many organizations, including the World Resources Institute. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad, glad that you are here. You have such a vast experience on environment, on development, uh, on, on peace building. I'm particularly thinking about your work in uh, Sri Lanka. And it seems that these three elements of environment, development and peace, they run like a thread through your life. Do you believe that progress on each of these is dependent on progress of the others? And uh, which issues are you currently giving your most attention? No, absolutely. The three are most interlinked. If, if we destroy nature, of course, we uh, under, under, undermine the very existence of development and our lives. On the other hand, if we cause wars, that's uh, an enormous destruction of human life, but also normally the, the biggest destroyer of, of, uh, uh, of nature you can think of. And it detracts uh, attention from the, from solving the development and environment problems. So the, the three are so much linked in a peaceful world where the major powers of the world, particularly the United States and China, are working closely together. There is no limit to what we can achieve, neither on development nor on the environment. Yeah, so cooperation is 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 maybe the fourth word we should add to this. It's, it seems we don't get anywhere without cooperation. And that's that's not always going as it should in, in these days. What do you think? I think we should always focus on where we can work together. Uh, together is maybe the most important uh, word in the world, because if we don't work together, we, we will fail. However, if we, if we join hands, uh, we, we can resolve all major fa uh, problems facing, facing humanity in the 21st century. There is an old saying from the Indian Vedas. It says the whole world is one family. That we should take as our starting point. The whole world is one family. Yes, I, I, I believe so very much too. One, one small tiny detail. Your, uh, as I see that your microphone, yes, is sometimes calling, coming against your collar. Uh, for those that are listening in, we can see each other on Zoom. You can only hear us. And l let me move to the um, to the elections in your own country, in Norway. In, in the past year, uh, we've seen devastation caused by climate change all over the world. We saw the forest fires, the floods, the droughts, increasing hurricanes. And in Europe, closer to home, we saw, um, I, I mainly remember the, the, the floodings in Germany and Belgium, which were devastating. I remember the fires in Italy and Greece. And that may have helped that last September, climate change was put center stage in, in the elections in your country, in, in Norway, which is a country which I always find fascinating that on the one hand, it is very much pro-nature. I think it has also some of the most beautiful nature uh, that I've seen anywhere in, in, in the world, especially on, on your west coast and the fjords. Um, but in stark contrast, the main source of wealth in Norway comes from fossil fuel production. And are these elections maybe a preview of the political dilemmas that we will see for other countries in, in, in this decennium, where also 
climate change might become much more center stage in, in politics. Yeah, of course, I mean, Norway, at, as, at its core, is a hypocritical nation. <laughs> On one <laughs> hand, uh, we are world champions. We have the highest penetration of electric cars anywhere in the world. Uh, more than 80% of all cars bought in Norway last month was, were electric. Uh, we have been world leaders on protecting rainforests and uh, in, in many other respects, Norway is a, is a great nation doing good. On the other hand, we are addicted to oil. Uh, we are pumping oil at a high speed, even going into the Arctic where there is no protection against oil spills, no technologies available to bring up uh, oil from, from, the, from the ice. So it's this mixed bag of good and bad in, in the same nation. Of course, you, you will find a lot of the same in many other nations, but it's, it's maybe in, a, um, uh, in an extreme form in Norway. And I think the elections we had in Norway in September should be a learning uh, exercise for the environmentalists all over the world, because it was fascinating, but also a little bit damaging. On one hand, for the first time in the history of our nation, environment was on the top of the agenda. I recall very well when I was the party leader of the Socialist Party or the Green Party in, in the 1990s, we had to fight tooth and nail to get environment on the agenda. When we had the debates among the party leaders, the hosts from the <laughs> broadcasting corporation said, environment is a non-issue. Don't try to bring up that. Here we should discuss the real issues, and the real issues are employment, tax, jobs, economy. That's the real issues. Don't come here with this non-issue of the environment. Well, I forced it on the agenda, but I had to disobey the, the hosts and just start speaking about it, even if they try to uh, hush me down. Now, environment was the top issue, and you would expect the Green parties to do well. The Green parties lost. There are three relatively small green parties in Norway. Uh, combined, they lost votes in an election where environment for the first time was on the top of the agenda. Why was that? Because the voters didn't like what they saw. They saw environmentalist being on the negative rather than on the positive, telling people all they should not do, rather telling people the enormous opportunities coming from the green shift all the jobs we can have, all the economic prosperity we can obtain with, with the green transformation, and of course the much better health, the much more fun life, all the, I mean, the, simply the much, much better life we will have in Norway if we go green. Rather than doing that, the environmentalists were on the negative. And they were also on the uh, exclusive, portraying environment as something for young people in the cities, Rather than as a, and the, the environmentalist parties did well in the big cities in Norway, but they lost enormously in the rest of the country because they didn't set out green and environment as a people's issue. It's a people's issue from small communities in the remote parts of Norway. People there are living in nature, they're close to nature, and of course you can set out environment as their issue rather than uh, making this culture uh, a front. Uh, with, with the people in the, in the remote areas. So these two big mistakes, being negative rather than positive, being exclusive rather than inclusive, made the environmentalist of Norway lose the first election in the history of Norway, which was focused on climate change and the environment. It's unbelievable. That, that is fascinating, yes, that, that, that the Green parties lose while 
environment is is really central stage. In in a way, uh, it this gives me this gives me hope, and this makes me also lose hope because what ultimately we need to do in the world is to get rid of burning fossil fuels, which is, let's say, three quarters of, of, of the problem of climate change is, is caused by burning fossil fuels. So we should burn less. And now one of the, I think, the country with the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world, Norway, a country that is is already rich and has everything in place, should be and and that is environmentally minded uh, more than quite a few other um, uh, oil producing states that should be the ideal first country to say when we have to burn less fossil fuels this is where we should start instead of let's say some poor country that hasn't been through any transition yet um and and even even there it is difficult to reduce production it it seems to be the ultimate tragedy of the commons that everybody says well we we have to do better but somebody else should start so so who should start and norway should start uh, and of course also europe and the united states should start i mean the united states has historically uh, produced 25 times the climate emissions per capita as india and in Glasgow, a lot of European NGOs and a lot of European ministers even were finger-pointing to India as if India was the main problem for climate change. India is one of the main countries solving the problem of climate change, while we in Europe and North America has caused the problem, and we should look into ourselves. But we need to do it in a way where we bring people on board. Uh, the, the Norwegians are environmentalists at heart. Basically, every Norwegian has a very close relationship to nature. Then the environmentalist movement, the green movement, need to remind people about, about that, build on the love for nature, which is in the heart of all Norwegians, and explain how many better, more decent jobs we can get in the new economy. I'm involved in the setting up of a new battery factory in Norway, which will produce electric battery batteries for the emerging electric car industries in Europe. That battery factory will, of course, not be at the west end of Oslo. <laughs> it will yeah. be in the remote parts of Norway, and it will produce many more jobs in, in, in that part of Norway than any industrial development in the history of that part, southern part of Norway. There has never been anything like that of, of that size. But the environmentalists need to speak... Uh, of the fantastic opportunities of green hydrogen, on electric batteries, of offshore wind, on solar roofs. I mean, all this which will create jobs and many more jobs than Norway presently have in the, in the oil industry. But of course, if you focus on the negative, what people will not get, then you lose. If you focus on the enormous opportunities, they will win. When Martin Luther King made his uh, the most, maybe most famous speech in, in modern times in the Western world, when he came to Washington in, in 1963, he didn't say, I had a nightmare. He said, <laughs> I have a dream. A dream yeah. of a better world for my children and grandchildren. And that um, was not because there was no reason to have a nightmare. I mean, the situation for black people in the United States those days were horrendous. <laughs> but still, he focused on the positive, what he could achieve. That's the way forward for the broad global green movement. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the ultimate example of positive communication because, especially in those days, there was, of course, 
a, a true nightmare going on. So it was good to speak. Remember, about black the dream. people could not go to the same schools and universities, the same restaurants. When the driver of President Lyndon B. Johnson was driving the empty car from Washington to Texas, where Lyndon B. Johnson was living, he couldn't go to a decent toilet because there were no yeah. toilets for blacks around the, the highways had to go into the countryside to, to do the pooing uh, yeah. at the time. That was the yeah. level. And still, Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. Yeah. And you and many other people have, have a dream too. If you look at history... Uh, a transition to a new phase of the economy has often been, at the end, a very positive step. But while doing it, uh, there were people that were supporting it and that were against it. And you normally start in a position where most people are against it. And uh, quite recently, I compared it somewhere in an interview or in a podcast with the, the shift that we had to make between, I think, the, the 1830s and, and 1860s from moving from sailing ships to steamships. And in the beginning, it was, if you invested too soon, you made a bad move. You bought a very expensive steam machine that then exploded on the very first trip, and then the ship was midway and had no sails uh, to, to get back to the harbor. But if you were too late in investing, you, had, uh, you were in a phase that there were very good steam machines, uh, they were always sailing, uh, whether there was wind or not. And if you then still had sailing ships, you were complete bankrupt. And I believe if you make that comparison to where we are now with moving from a fossil fuel-based industry towards um, uh, uh, a renewable-based um, uh, economy, that we are right now in, in the past few years entering the phase where... Um, we should rapidly move into into that new phase. Is that is that where you are as well, or are people still too early to invest in renewables now, or are we much too late already? Where are we? I believe that there have been more change in the last two years than there was in decades before that. Uh, Lenin, the Russian leaders, once said that there are decades when nothing is happening. And then all of a sudden, there are years where decades are happening. And I think the Corona time was such a period of where decades were happening. We see huge investments and transformation, exponential growth uh, in so many of the of the good practices. And we have, I mean, we are in the fourth industrial revolution. Very briefly, there was the first industrial revolution in the UK with the spinning machines. The second with the, the railroads in the United States and other parts of the world. The third was the digital. We are now in the midst of the fourth. And as all the previous industrial revolution brought to the humanity enormous benefits, exactly the same is happening in this. We are living much longer lives, much better education. Take the two biggest nations in the world. And when they came out of the Second World War, both India and China had life expectancy around 30 years. Now life expectancy in India is 68, in China is 78. This year China surpassed the United States of America when it comes to life expectancy. At the time, hardly any Indian, hardly any Chinese were educated. Now, of course, every child is going to school in China, and the vast majority, nearly all in India as well. So let's see this enormous progress with modernity and industrial revolutions abroad and look into the benefits of the uh, fourth industrial revolution. 
This is not to say that we should not speak about the problems because scientists, others need to set out all the challenges, for instance, with climate change. But we, as in, uh, as environmentalists, should mainly speak about our love for nature, the, the miracle which is nature, the beauty of this very vulnerable planet. And we should speak about the enormous benefits for people's life. If we move into the green economy, there will be more and better jobs. There will be better prosperity. We have the ability to share that prosperity globally. And of course, we will have better health, less pollution, better lives overall. So let's focus on the positives uh, uh, while being, of course, absolutely aware of the problems. Yeah, and I, I think on, on health, we we lose every year something between, I've, I've read different numbers, but I think it's between seven or nine million per year uh, people that are dying of air pollution, uh, which, of course, if we switch to, switch to renewables, we get much cleaner air. Uh, so that is already an, 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 an amazing gain that we would get from from uh, from a cleaner world. Uh, and, uh, and I recently uh, had a podcast um, uh, speaking about plastic pollution, which also uh, one of the things we learned there is that the average uh, person in the world eats uh, a, an, an amount of plastic every week uh, equal to one credit card. Uh, which I don't know what the health effects are of that act, but I don't think that it's very good for your uh, for your health. When you you earlier mentioned um, the huge advantage of jobs, and then you mentioned about uh, the the region in in Norway that is gaining from investment in renewables, but um, on the other hand, if uh, a, a problem that is related to them, think now about the U.S is that where the jobs are lost in the old industry is not where you normally gain the new jobs. So let's say if you stop uh, winning coal in, um, in, 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 in West Virginia uh, and you build windmills in California, it is not the same people that, that uh, gain and lose uh, from this transition. And how do you see a role of the, of the government in, in, in solving this this kind of created inequality in, in the transition? This is uh, maybe the biggest challenge we are facing because overall, of course, the transition to a green economy will have enormous benefits for the vast majority of people. But some people may consider themselves as potential losers. And as you say, if you're a coal miner in Kentucky or West Virginia, you may not be only happy to see all the jobs coming up in the solar industry of, uh, of California or the wind industry of Texas. And exactly the same in China. I mean, the uh, most uh, affluent provinces like Guangdong and Fujian is, of course, very much ba- much more based on the green economies than some of the more traditional uh, coal-based or industrial provinces like Liaoning or, or Shanxi. So this problem is everywhere. And we need governments to invest in re- regional schemes for for empowerment and for employment and for benefits for those regions. And we need training schemes for people so that they can be trained for the for the new economy. Fortunately, this is also happening. The European Union has made a fair transition as a core part of the green taxonomy of Europe, has set up funds for those regions who may benefit less from the transition than others, and training schemes for individuals who 
may want to go into a new economy. In China, Didi, which is the, the Uber of China, except that it's much, much, much bigger than Uber, <laughs> they have uh, put up training schemes for, pre, for former coal workers to get jobs in the vast empire of, of Didi uh, as, as drivers, as uh, transitional jobs while they're waiting for some new opportunity, or as, as permanent jobs uh, as drivers. So governments absolutely need to uh, be very, very, very focused on the f- fair transition. Otherwise, you will mobilize too much opposition, people voting for parties who don't want climate action or uh, they using lobbying or other, or other ways to stop, stop the needed transformation of societies. So uh, in a way, you could say you need, you need good governance at uh at at a national level or federal level in some countries uh to to take care of this transition it's something that we saw in the netherlands where in the late 1950s we stopped the coal winning in limburg where where we find maastricht in in the south southeast of the netherlands and what uh what the government did when they stopped the mining industry they arranged that new industries went to that area which is now dsm so that's chemical industry And the interesting thing now is that in this latest transition, that DSM is typically a company that is uh, uh, quite progressive on all their sustainability uh, and policies. But on the role of government, if I now think about the United States, because I know that many listeners to this podcast are in the United States, if you shut down uh, the traditional coal industry, which is, I think, only 50,000 people in all of the U.S. that work in the in the coal industry, and you invest in wind, which has hundreds of thousands of jobs in different regions, you, I, I would say that pleads for a stronger role of the federal government in, in guiding this, because with purely free market forces, which are always championed in the U.S., uh, that may make it more difficult to to do such a transition compared to, let's say, more guided economies as, as let's say, Western Europe is, or a country like China, where the government is even much, much stronger in this field. What do you think about this? No, I mean, you, you are absolutely you are absolutely right. Uh, you need government to work with business to get the transition right. Uh, that's a weakness of the United States, that the state is weak. The state is, of course, much stronger in most European countries and in China. Uh, and you will see both in Europe and China, government and business working together uh, for the fair transition. And that, that's for sure needed in the United States also. But let me give you one personal experience from Norway, which is very close to what you reported from the Netherlands. I was, uh, as a parliamentarian, very much involved in saving the biggest steel plant uh, we had in Norway. It was a big plant, had uh, many workers, uh, was a great, uh, great unions there, and I was close to the unions. And I fought uh, very hard in the parliament to, to save that plant. At the end, we lost. The plant was closed down, the pollution stopped, and the workers were let off. But today, there are many more jobs in the same place, just in many different smaller businesses and industries, rather than this one big steel plant. So the community has not lost. Um, the jobs, of course, are much cleaner. Uh, overall, they are, are as well paid. 
so the society has come out uh, on the winning winning side, even with the close down of the steel plant. And that's of course what we should aim at in uh, in the areas of the United States, or Europe, or China, or wherever India, uh, who may see difficulties with the shift. But <laughs> people are also clever, and the Kentucky Coal Museum, uh, which you would think would celebrate coal. They were just looking for for, uh, for for new power in Kentucky. What did they choose? Well, solar. Not because <laughs> of ideology, but because it was the cheapest energy they could uh, get handled uh, in Kentucky. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Well, uh, another one is, of course, at a much bigger scale, is, is the country of Abu Dhabi, sitting literally on top of, of the oil. And their own energy is increasingly coming from uh, from, from solar panels. And uh, so that's, that's another good example. Yeah, yeah I so, think the United Arab Emirates deserves credit for being a front runner in, in transforming oil into other revenues. Of course, they've created some of the most fascinating tourist industries in the world, also two of the biggest and most successful airlines in the world. But they're also investing very heavily uh, in solar and other renewable industries because, of course, they know that the long term survival of their society will depend on the ability to transform the oil revenue into lasting uh, lasting revenues and yeah. those will come from renewables yeah and they will they will need a model for the future when when we really transition out of uh, out of uh, uh, fossil fossil fuels and we spoke about the role of government but of course businesses are now increasingly uh, getting really active on sustainability now in such a way that I can hardly think of any a company or industry that is not promoting daily that whatever they're doing is green, which includes a lot of greenwashing, of course. But in a way, it's a positive trend that they all show now, unlike, let's say, just two or three years ago, that, that they got the message that there is that there's something uh, changing. And some companies are are amazing in what they achieve. I, I remember we, uh, as as uh, as the listeners probably expect before we do any podcast, I normally always uh, chat with uh, whomever is in in the show. And when we spoke yesterday or the day before, we were. Uh, you mentioned Ørsted in Denmark. I think that's an amazing example. Can can you can you say something about Ørsted? What what happened there? Absolutely. Ørsted, uh, the name was Dong at the time, was uh, an oil company in Denmark. Uh, at some point they decided the future is not with oil. Uh, we will transform the company. They changed the name and picked Ørsted, which is uh, the name of a scientist from, 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 from Denmark. Uh, and they completely transformed the company. There's no more oil. It's, it's now the biggest or second biggest producer of windmills in the world. And of course, Denmark is a front nation uh, on, in, the, in the wind industry. And I had a long conversation with Matt Snipper, who's the CEO of Ørsted, and asked him, how did you do this? I mean, didn't, didn't you come up from protests from the staff or from customers or from shareholders? And I said, yes, we had many difficulties. The key was to have the will. You had the will to change, and you made the strategic decision for change, and you stick to it. We could overcome all the difficulties, and now uh, every day is so proud of Ørsted. It's a shiny example 
<laughs> or uh, Danish contributions to the world, and a shiny example of how we can transform an old company into something uh, which is, um, uh, example, is IKEA, the, the, the Swedish furniture giant. Uh, I would claim that IKEA is far ahead of any garment in the world when it comes to a circular economy. Uh, they uh, intend to be fully circular so that you can you can rent rather than buy, so that you can hand in old furniture, and so that you can make, that IKEA will take care of the recycling or the reuse uh, of the of the furniture in the future. Every government, whereas forward-leaning as Ørsted or IKEA, uh, we will be in the right place. Uh, at the moment, business in general are ahead not of governments, not hiding behind governments, as would have been the case in the past. Yeah, I, I remember after COP26 that there were quite a few comments that uh, in, in, in the press, uh, uh, journalists saying that it seems now that uh, generally business is becoming much more progressive than governments. And I think these are some, some wonderful examples. I also know from IKEA, for instance, that they have now as a policy that in at least all the Western countries where they are, they will put so much solar on uh, the rooftops of those huge IKEA shops that they will not only provide their own energy with solar, but at a minimum will provide the same amount of energy that they use for that specific IKEA plant uh, to also give back uh, to the grid uh, for uh, for other consumers uh, to enjoy, which I think is a wonderful uh, policy. And yeah, IKEA is full of, of, of these kind of progressive uh, policies. So talking about the grid, that seems to be one of the main... Well, there are many challenges, but that is a huge challenge as well, where I suppose we can't do without a firm role of government uh, to make sure that the grid is adapted to this transition. No, absolutely. Of course, uh, a lot of the solar and wind energy will have to come from relatively remote places. I mean, I think that the biggest potential for wind energy is offshore, because in, in the sea, there are very few birds who will be, be killed by the windmills, and there's very little, na- I mean, very few people who will lose their nice view of nature. So there is very little opposition to windmills in the sea. And in the future, we will have floating windmills. And that's an area where my nation, Norway, is somewhat in the forefront, trying to use the technology and knowledge from the oil industry in uh, establishing floating windmills. And the same with the solar energy. It cannot come from the most heavily populated places in the world, in, say, the Yangtze Valley in China or the Ganga Valley in India. There is hardly any space for, for big-scale big solar. So solar will have to come from deserts and remote areas. And then, of course, you need a functioning grid for the wind from offshore or from the solar from, uh, from, uh, from deserts. Uh, and th- that grid uh, will very often have to be built by government. So while the solar panels or wind energy will be produced by private companies, you, uh, you need at least quite often a government to provide the grid. So government business partnerships are key to the rapid rollout of, of solar and wind. Exactly the same for green hydrogen that can be produced, say, in, in Australia, which has huge, huge um, deserts which are well suited for both wind and solar in Inner Mongolia and China, but that's far from the most populated area in China. Again, fantastic opportunities for green hydrogen, but you also need a, uh, an infrastructure to, to, to bring the green hydrogen from the, those remote areas to the areas where you have the industries and, the, uh, and aviation and shipping and trucks and whatever will use the green hydrogen. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder that Australia has so many options to go green. It's, it's a pity they don't, <laughs> but uh, I, I hope they will they will change their 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 act. It, it's I not think... it's not completely fair because I mean. Uh, uh, so I was a bit cynical and too fast here. Uh, so yeah, so a lot of a uh, lot of roles for for government uh, subsidies is of course another one. I think are, are should governments prioritize on on changing the subsidy st- structures for energy? What do you think? Yeah, let let me bring a couple of success stories from Norway. I mean, again, with the caveat that we are addicted to oil, we also sometimes doing good and. The electric vehicle policies has been fantastic. And that was government realizing that if you want people to buy electric vehicles, you need to give an introductory offer. Because no one wants to be the first buying an electric car. You want to see it work with your neighbors before you start buying it. Then the offer was, we will change the tax system uh, so that electric cars become cheaper relative uh, to the gasoline cars. Uh, both pay uh, pay to the pay for them to the government, but the, relatively uh, speaking, elect- buyers of electric cars pay less. And secondly, we will allow electric cars to run in uh, in the bus lanes. Uh, they will get priority for parking in some areas. And they will be able to go on ferries uh, easier and cheaper because we have a lot of ferries in the uh, in Norwegian road network. So all these made an enormous transformation. And now uh, we will be close to 100% of electric in, in all new cars uh, bought in Norway, but it could not ha- have happened unless the governments had put in place the right policies. We are also yeah. very leaders in electric ferries, and that also can boils down to government policies. Uh, when I was in the government, we introduced um, uh, uh, um, uh, a system for NOx emissions, Uh, which said that those uh, ferry companies or fishing uh, companies who introduce new technologies, they will get uh, support from the government. Those who don't will pay a levy to the government. It was a zero-sum game, so the industry uh, as such did not lose or win, but the frontrunners won. The lazy and backseat drivers, they lost. And it was run by the Norwegian Association of Business, so the people who were competent, the business people who were running the scheme, And it made enormous change. And now Norway is by far the biggest nation in the world when it comes to electric ferries crossing many of our fjords. So you need business to do the job, but you need government to regulate markets. Yeah, yeah. These are these are amazing examples. How, by the way, in uh, when I think of the Netherlands, we have a small, compact country which is crowded with. 17 million people, but you have that vast country of Norway with about 5 million people, I guess. Um, how do you charge those electric vehicles? Was that a government investment scheme to put charging stations uh, along the highways or or was that done on on a free market basis because people were buying electric cars, therefore those stations were built? How's that done? 
I think that's also a good learning example for others. In the beginning, government, meaning, say, the city municipality of Oslo, put up charging stations in city streets, and a number of businesses put up charging for their employees. But after some time, the market took over because now those who run the gasoline station, because want to attract the customers who run an electric vehicle, because they, they will not buy gasoline from the gas station, but they may buy, buy chocolate. They might, be, um, might want to have a hamburger or, <laughs> uh, or some biscuits. Uh, uh, so they want to attract the same customers. So now the market is bringing up charging station. And basically, you can go everywhere in Norway now with any, without any trouble in getting uh, fast, uh, fast charging for, the, for, for your car. So I, I think that this model will work basically everywhere else. You need an introductory offer. And then you depend on government or big business. After some time, the market will do the trick. Yeah, yeah. And that's typically another example where, you, yeah, you, you need good cooperation between uh, a, a kind of a powerful government uh, to help with transition and then you give it back to the market. And that is, I think that's that's an interesting case when we compare, let's say, the US and Western Europe and China as kind of three kind of different models to go through this transition. I was just um, just reading this morning uh, a new report that came out from uh, from McKinsey, uh, so, so one of the, the most well-known consulting firms in the world, and they estimated that um, $9 trillion will need to be invested every year for decades to limit the global temperature rise to one and a half uh, Celsius, and then The Guardian, always one of the best newspapers on, on environmental news, compared that to a calculation by uh, the insurance uh, firm Swiss Re, so reinsurance firms, so one of the, the biggest uh, reinsurers in, in the world, together with uh, Munich Re. Um, they estimated that the damage caused by a 2.6 degree rise in global temperatures by 2050 will reduce the global GDP by 14%. So in other words, uh, McKinsey said, apart from that absolute number, they said as a proportion of global GDP, the investment required would be 6.8% rising uh, to 8.8% and then later it will fall. So between, let's say, 7 and 9% investments. But doing that will avoid... Uh, a reduction in global GDP by 14%. This was like, I think, one or two days ago in The Guardian. I thought those numbers were interesting. So it, it, it says the economic case, the business case uh, for making the transition is, is a good one on top of all the other reasons we, we can think of. So I thought it was interesting, an interesting comparison of those two. Um, I want to move to China because... If, if, I, if I may just yeah, intervene yeah. on this, because this is absolutely critical. We need to stop uh, speaking as if uh, acting on climate change is a cost. It's an enormous opportunity for better jobs. So it's an op enormous opportunity to save money because solar is not the cheapest energy anywhere in the world. And, ch and changing from oil, from, uh, from coal into solar and wind is not a cost. It's an enormous, uh, enormous opportunity. Speaking as if acting on climate is a cost is as stupid as speaking like internet is a cost. Yes, of course, there will be 
costs in, involved in internet and yeah. the digital transformation. But overall, it saved money and made the world a much better place. And the same is happening here. Make a much better, much fairer, much greener world. And we will save money. So we should stop speaking as if it's a cost to act. Yeah. I, it, it reminds me also very much of uh, what Joe Biden was saying in the days of the of the presidential campaign. He very much focused on this is this is better for all of us. It, it gives jobs. It is it is the progress we need. It makes our uh, our country more competitive, etc. And it's 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 a pity that at the moment, uh, for for reasons that we've all followed, uh, his 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 program is a bit stalled in in, in Congress. Um, but he used also this positive communication, basically saying what what makes very much sense um, of 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 saying we we have to do this. It's better and it's 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 cheaper and it it, it saves a lot of lives and basically makes makes life better. And um, yeah, so so these are these are good points. I know that you're you're quite active on China um, in, uh, and I. I I always find China, um, whenever you talk about climate, people end up with China. And uh, the way I see it is that there's um, there's basically two versions. Uh, one is that um, uh, there's no need to do anything about climate in the Western world because China is polluting uh, more than all the Western countries together. So basically, it's, 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 uh, they're, they're the cause. So... Why should we run as long as they are polluting so much? That's the one version of the story. And there's the other version of the story that uh, China is also the biggest investor in, in, in renewables and doing a lot of good things. So it seems, um, I, I, I see in the media a very, um, depending on what you read, it's either the one story or the other. And I, I often miss a kind of nuanced vision of those um, seemingly opposite developments that are taking place at at the same time but actually it is it is uh, it is of course one uh, one bigger picture we should look at and I think you are probably the best person um, I should ask about what's going on in China how should we view what China is doing because I think everybody agrees that whatever happens in China is important when you talk about environment and, and climate. So where's, where where are you on, on this debate? Yeah, first of all, we need to realize how big China is. Uh, the population of China is much bigger than all Western countries combined. I mean, if you add European Union to the United States, Canada, and uh, Western-affiliated nations like Australia, New Zealand, still the population is a little bit more than half of the population of China. So, of course, everything... In China, is big. It's the biggest uh, emitter. It's the biggest coal-producing uh, nation in the world. But China is also now the lead nation on every single environment-friendly technology. Some of these technologies are initially developed in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Silicon Valley, in the United States. But China has brought them to scale. Last year, half of all solar in the industry in the world was in China. China is producing 80% of all solar panels sold in the world. Half of all wind energy in the world comes from China. It's the biggest in green hydrogen. Since Olympics in, 19, uh, in 2008, China has rolled out 40,000 kilometers of high-speed green rail. In the same period, the United States has produced exactly zero. 
China has nine, I mean, 99%, think of that number, 99% of all electric buses on planet Earth are running on Chinese roads. <clears throat> there, are more, there are more electric buses in one Chinese city, Shenzhen, than in the entire world outside China combined. But fortunately, the rest of the world will follow. I mean, we will get electric buses all over the world, and China will produce many of them. If the West doesn't really match China on, on all these uh, green technologies, we will be the losers. China will simply take all the markets. Uh, so there, there, there are few people more crazy than those saying that for our economic benefit, you should do nothing because China is not doing it. Exactly the opposite. If we want to compete in the green techno- technological revolution of the 21st century, the West needs to be as good as China produce as cheap as China, as much green infrastructure as China. By the way, President Xi Jinping of China, since uh, he started traveling domestically in China uh, after COVID uh, crisis, um, he, I think, has visited three or four national parks, speaking about the environment all the time, setting out to China the need for the Chinese people to produce a beautiful China, to reduce pollution, uh, to take uh, um, take steps towards an ecological civilization. I would simply wish that Western leaders were talking as much about the environment as President Xi, or for that matter, as Prime Minister Modi of India, uh, which is another nation which is also doing a lot, which is not recognized by the West. Yeah, yeah. And it, I just read this morning another one of Simon Evans uh, in, in Carbon Brief, who reported that China built more offshore wind capacity last year than the rest of the world did in the last five years. So there's another stunning one on, on, on top of everything you mentioned. And I have the impression that that part of China often often doesn't get enough attention. And I think it's dangerous not to give that enough attention because it, it, it gives in the West the feeling that uh, we, are, we are on the right track, we are doing the right things. And I think purely from... An economic perspective, in, in 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 the kind of let's say global competition that we are in, it's that is bad to miss this development, and I think it's also um, uh, kind of unfair when you when you view it from from the environmental point of view. Um, but on the other hand, there's also there's also the the picture of China as uh, the the country that is emitting uh, alone more uh, greenhouse gases than uh, all the rest of, of the OECD countries together. So their policies towards so increasing renewable energy is wonderful. But at the end of the day, what really counts, of course, for climate change is not more renewables, but it, it is less use of fossil fuel. And there, China is uh, hasn't been too... Um, they didn't come at COP26 with really dramatic new announcements of of nearing the date of, of of lowering it. If I say it correctly from top of my head, I think they say now that uh, net carbon neutrality by 2060 and that before 2030 they will they will peak in uh, in emissions. But we don't know where the peak is and when the peak is and how wide. That peak is. Do do you know anything more about it? Did I did I miss the news in the past few months? 
No, but you may have not at least taken sufficient notice to a few of the promises made by China, which I think is an enormous global promise and maybe even more important than any outcome of Glasgow. The most important was the, the decision to stop all Chinese overseas investments in coal. Uh, that will have dramatic oh, yeah. impact on the world because yeah. not, not only, of course, uh, nations will not get uh, coal investments from China, and nor, nor will they get from Europe or Japan or Korea or anyone else. So simply global uh, investments in coal will stop. But if Indonesia or Kenya or South Africa or Pakistan cannot get coal investments from China, what will they ask? <laughs> of yeah. course, they need energy. Uh, obviously, they will ask solar, wind, green hydrogen and all the other renewables. So you will see a dramatic increase in Chinese investments in, in the renewable industries in other developing countries, uh, which is uh, fantastic news for the planet. Uh, China has also promised to do tree planting every year from now to 2030, an area the size of Belgium. Well, Belgium is not the biggest nation in the world, <laughs> but uh, as a Dutch, you will realize that that's, that at least is uh, quite remarkable. Uh, and uh, we can be quite confident that China will achieve this because NASA, the American Space Agency, has said that number one factor now for greening the surface of the planet is tree planting in China. But of course, Pakistan has a 10 billion tree scheme. Ethiopia has done massive tree planting and a number of other nations also on the same path. And in India, some of the, uh, the state of Telangana and southern India, for instance, have increased its tree cover with 3% recently. Yeah. I want to highlight this positive news, of course, because they can inspire others to, to do the same and more. Yeah. I think in Europe, we're also growing. We grew more forests the size of Portugal in Europe, but I've forgotten on what time scale. So maybe, let's say, in, 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 in the past decades or so. But we are we're growing in Europe as well, uh, which is uh, which positive. But of course, the size of Belgium every year that is uh, that is amazing. I saw also today that the China's energy consumption intensity. So that means the amount of energy consumed uh, per unit of gross domestic product. So how how in how intense is the energy consumption that you use? is uh, set to uh, be 13.5% lower uh, in by 2025 compared to 2020. Uh, so basically more energy efficiency in China, which is, uh, which is a positive step as well. And that's, that's also related to the, the, the 14 five-year plan that, uh, that China is on. Um, so that's uh, that's another positive aspect. Yeah, I, I think China is, uh, as I, as I said in the in the media, um, there's uh, there's different views. I, when when, for instance, uh, at at the end of COP twenty six, which was of course in, let's say it, it it didn't deliver what what we had hoped for. It it was certainly not completely useless. There were quite a few good things coming out of it, but it, it was not the massive thing that we needed. I found it surprisingly how uh, it was spinned in the media very much that uh, India was very much to blame uh, because of, of, of the change in the one line about coal. And in all the Western media that I read, uh, India and 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 in 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 the second place China were very much blamed for this one line. Um, 
which I think in in the line of this debate is maybe not com- completely fair. How, how do you view India in this in this context and and the way they were portrayed after uh, after the COP in November? This is, I mean, completely crazy, and uh, it's an affront to uh, to human decency. Uh, per capita emissions from my nation, Norway, up through history, are 15 times Indian per capita emissions, one five times Indian emissions. Americans are at 25 times uh, Indian emissions. How can Westerners are finger-pointing to India uh, for some small nuance in the language of Glasgow? Uh, the good news is, of course, that India is acting on climate, but they're not acting for us, and they're not acting for the Americans or the Dutch or Norwegians. They're acting because India is much more vulnerable to climate change than North America or Europe. Uh, India has an extremely heavy population in a very vulnerable uh, uh, part of the world. We, if, for instance, the uh, glaciers of the Himalayas were to melt down, the big rivers of Asia, the Indus, the Ganga, the Brahmaputra, may, maybe even on the re- um, uh, seasonal rivers, uh, will have dramatic consequences for India. And the Indian leaders know this, so they're acting, not for us, but for themselves or for India. And just uh, India will very soon be the second biggest solar provider in the world, next to next to China. Uh, Prime Minister Modi just launched a green hydrogen mission for India. The two biggest industrialists in India, Mr. Ambani and Mr. Dani, put 20 and, and $10 billion on the, on the table for this. Later, Mr. Ambani has said $80 billion for green transformation. So these are huge, huge changes. So stop finger-pointing to India and establish a respectful relationship with India, as, and of course with China, uh, on the basis that they are acting as much as we are doing. They are acting at a much lower level, at a much early stage in development than uh, the Dutch or the Norwegians are acting, and we should be fully respectful of that uh, and work with them. Yeah, and, and especially that last point, because you, you, you mentioned the, the, the 15% was Norway and the 25% was the US, but that is, of course right now a moment in time where it's already completely out of balance but if you include the historic emissions uh, then the comparison let's say take the US and India is is going completely nowhere I mean, the US has for what is it 200 years been emitting huge amounts and especially in the past 50 years uh, whereas India is just stepping up its emissions so it's 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 if you would take in long long term perspective the the numbers are even more extreme so uh, yes, I'm, I'm very much with you there, and and it's uh, it's it's good to have these things mentioned as well um, in the podcast. So, but but then what, what, what's really needed in this world is the ability to look to how things look from another perspective. And uh, yeah. there is not one Indian, not I mean there are 1.3 billion Indians. Not one of them will accept this Western view that India is to be blamed for climate change. So please yeah. look into how it looks. The world looks from Delhi, or from that matter, from Beijing, yeah. uh, and we can of course ask them also to take a look at how the world, what the world looks like from Europe and, and America. Then, then we get a much better world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I can imagine if you are in a country like, let's say, India or, or any country in the global south, and then being promised at a certain moment that you would get the, the hundred per year billion fund, and then the West is not even. Even, not even able with all the advantages they've had of, of using so much fossil fuel energy for so much time and still doing much more 
uh, still making much more use of fossil fuels than all those countries together, and then not even being able to fulfill your promise, and not not even being able to to uh, to really pay up when this is one of the top priorities uh, during COP26. Um, I I can imagine when you live in the south uh, that that you. Yeah, it must be very and look, look, look to the positives. I mean, I, I just was in the state of Maharashtra. Uh, Maharashtra has a population, if it was a separate state, it would be a little bit smaller than Russia, uh, a lot bigger than Germany. So, so it matters. In Maharashtra, they have a government which is going green very fast. They have just launched an electric vehicle scheme, electric bus scheme for the big city of Mumbai. They aim to make every bus in Mumbai electric in the next few years. They aim to build up a huge metro system in Mumbai to bring people from cars into, into the metros. So there are lots of positive developments in India. Uh, let's look into what, what they what they achieve and how we, we can learn from them and how we can help them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If if you would suppose you would be the editor of a main newspaper in the world, or you would be, uh, let's say, you would be, be the... Uh, the owner or the boss of a a worldwide news channel, what would you change in 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 the communication? What would you show to the people watching your your news channel? News media in the world are heavily weighted to the negative all the time uh, because they believe that negative news sells better. That gives us the wrong perspective of the world because we are living at a time where we have huge ability to solve problems because we have solved problems in the past. I mean, there are much fewer poor people in the world than, the, than there was. There are much fewer uneducated people in the world than there was. People are living much longer and on average much happier lives than, than in the past. So you should focus on the positive. And the most important here is the win-win policies, all those policies which are good both for environment, for Mother Earth, and good for the jobs and prosperity and triple win also good for health and people's well-being at the same time moving from coal to solar moving from uh, traditional cars into electric cars greening the land changing agriculture uh, moving from a very uh, meat-based diet into a more vegetable-based diet all these are wins for society and should be treated by media uh, like that rather than always focusing on the negatives um, to make more clicks and uh, uh, and bigger headlines. Yeah, yeah, it's something I experience very much being being quite big on Twitter that when I do something negative, let's say, whatever, volcano explodes or a headline like that, you immediately get a lot of clicks. And then if I say like, this is a wonderful scheme of replanting a forest in Burkina Faso or something. It hardly gets any clicks, and it's it's uh, it's 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 the positive communication. It's often more difficult than uh, than 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 the easy uh, negative clicks. I mentioned earlier that um, uh, if people want to ask questions, they should do towards uh, towards the end of this podcast. And I. Uh, I, I saw that Gregory had a question. He's popping up now. Is it okay, Eric, if I let Gregory in uh, to ask a question? Sure. Uh, let me see. I invite Gregory to speak now, and then Gregory has to unmute himself once he has uh, moved up to the speaker's level. Gregory, did you 
get it. If you can hear me, maybe you have to refresh just by briefly pulling down um, the... Um, oh, I have to, sorry, I have to make you next caller first. There we go. And there you go. How are you guys doing? Speak. There you are. Uh, got a, two yeah. questions for you guys. Uh, you, you know, you about solar, anything else, but you haven't mentioned anything about nuclear. And, um, you know, the new uh, reactors that they're building, uh, China, in fact, is going to build 150 of them. Um, they're pretty amazing because they're taking existing rods and that would last for, you know, 10,000 years. And they're using those spent rods and they will bring them down to where they'll only have then a hundred year uh, life left. And so, I was kind of interested. I, you know, a lot of people who are environmentalists are against the nuclear option, but you know, it is the cleanest technology out there. Um, then the second question I was going to go with is, um, you know, you were talking about nature and the world and the environment and how you know beautiful it is, but you know, I don't know if you've seen these pictures of what they're doing to mine this lithium. I mean, they are destroying the planet to mine lithium everywhere. So it's like, I think that needs to be solved. Of how we are going to mine lithium for batteries before we sit there and say, oh, you know, electric vehicles, the ultimate solution when you're seeing what they actually are doing to nature. I mean, they are just destroying areas like I mean, it's just devastating. So um, and then one last quick one I was going to tell you is, you know, I live in California and I have solar on my house and we're actually producing more energy during the day than we need. But the problem is, is, you know, the state, which, you know, is supposed to be the blue state, they will not invest in battery storage um, for our uh, you know, our grid. So all of our energy at night, we're then having to fire up the, you know, the, the natural gas plants and the coal plants. And that's what they keep building more of. They're not investing in battery technology to store all this energy. And so it's like we're solving nothing here. And it just blows my mind that no one in talking about that so I'll, I'll, I'll hang up and take it listen to you guys thanks Gregory three really good questions Eric uh, on nuclear what what are your thoughts there there is a shift I think in the perspective I mean the perspective in the past was very much informed by Chernobyl by the three mile island uh, uh, accident in the in, in Pennsylvania and the US uh, I think what happened in Fukushima was fairly in, illustrative. I mean, there was a, a serious nuclear breakdown in Fukushima, but it killed very few people. 20,000 Japanese died from the uh, tsunami in, in Fukushima and hardly anyone from the nuclear breakdown. So I think there is a shift of perspective. M many people are more ready to accept uh, nuclear, but only on the, uh, if the the long-term, uh, uh, the long-term uh, uh, waste problem is uh, is resolved, and only if it we can be guaranteed that there is no linkage to to nuclear weapons, uh, and uh, with with of course uh, the prime technology of, of the 21st century. So I see a shift in the perspective, but still there is a lot of reluctance to nuclear among many people. Uh, battery storage is, of course, absolutely critical, and it's an area where we need to uh, to do enormous research uh, and, and to develop uh, better batteries, uh, better batteries for cars, but also better big batteries for, for storage. Uh, in the meantime, also we can use hydro as a battery, uh, and we can, of course, when we develop green hydrogen, we can use hydrogen as a uh, as a way of 
storing storing energy which is produced by wind and, and solar and use it in trucks and aviation and, and ferries and yeah. shipping and the and the destruction in the landscape caused by by lithium mining and other mining for for let's say the uh, the, the elements that we need uh, to produce um, uh, solar panels and, and, and batteries, uh, etc., and, and especially lithium stories. I, I've seen those pictures. What what do you think about about that part? I think there is hardly any industry where there is a big gap between the best and the worst. Um, the best miners do relatively little um, destruction of, of nature, just get out the mineral they need, but with, with, with limited consequences for nature. And some of the first, of course, leave uh, behind moon landscapes and also uh, with a complete uh, oblivion to the suffering of the, of the, of the people work, working in the mines. Uh, so governments need to make strong um, uh, limitations to how, how the mining industry operates because sometimes they operate in, in nations with a very, very, very weak governments, and then uh, the companies need to be regulated in their behavior from, from, from the mother, mother nations. Yeah, 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 and of course it's also a kind of comparison if you look at what, what the tar sands are doing, uh, the tar sands destruction, etc. Uh, but, but yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Um, per- personally, I believe that uh, we simply don't have the luxury to make a transition away from fossil fuels without including nuclear. I mean, I, I wish we would all have, you know, just, just just wind and solar combined with good batteries. But I think we we lack the time uh, to to do it. So I, I, I think nuclear. I, I I regret what Germany has done making making an energiewende with. Um, uh, fully based on getting rid of nuclear instead of saying we need to turn around the, I don't know what the word for energy when the, in, in English is, but a turnaround of the energy system away from fossil fuel instead of away from, from, from nuclear. And, and actually their coal use has, has increased. Um, and I, yeah, so I, I think nuclear um, kind of unfortunate because it. I don't think it's 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 really the cleanest and the safest, but I think it's compared to the destruction of fossil fuels. I think it is by far uh, cleaner and ultimately safer for the people. If you look at how many people die, I mentioned the seven to nine million people that die every year because of fossil fuel uh, emissions. Uh, the people that actually died from nuclear is 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 a fraction of 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 what has happened there. So um, I think these are uh, three really good questions. I think it also, uh, as Gregory mentioned, uh, says something about uh, the role of um, the role of government in regulating this transition. Because if if you have so much sun as you have in California, which California is famous for. It's a complete waste if you if you can't store that. Gregory, it, you're still there. Can you can you respond? Yeah, you know, uh, first I was going to mention that, and about nuclear because I know so many people are so against it because of say the Three Mile or the Chernobyl or you know. But the new design of these. Uh, are you still there? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear okay. you. So the you know the design of these new reactors for uh, you know nuclear. 
they've up they've changed it. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, they basically turned it upside down so that these rods would never be exposed if there was like what happened, uh, you know, Fujisima where the power just got completely wiped out. These rods now are upside down and they will fall into a liquid metal so that they can never be exposed. Um, you know, they're just using gravity so that there's no chance that, oh, we don't have any water pumping into the systems to keep the rods covered. Um, it's just that it's just not known. And, and so many people, because they've just refused to look at nuclear over such a long period of time. Um, I just saw a stat here in the United States and, you know, they created a, a agency for nuclear back in 1945. And there's been zero, you know, uh, allowed permits since then. You know, I mean, it's just kind of one of these things where it really needs to be re-looked at by the entire world again. And, you know, it's it's when you talk about China, they're the one taking the lead on it. And, you know, the rest of the world's still afraid and um, they but they're going to use these new design plants. And, you know, it, it's going to really make a huge difference if people can get on the, the, the right side of it again. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I seem to recall that um, Bill Clinton as president stopped a uh, project on improving both the efficiency as well as uh, as the safety of. Uh, of nuclear power plants, um, and that 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 stopped a very promising development. Uh, but he was cheered for it because so many people were against uh, nuclear energy anyway. I don't know the details there, but it's something I re- remember reading um, some years ago. Um, so yes, it is. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's a very valuable uh, aspect to uh, to look at in the, in this thing. I'm looking at the clock, and uh, we've we've been very long in this call. Um, we we had a bit of a hiccup midway, which uh, which I will cut out uh, later because of of uh, and lack of energy and lack of energy for a moment, which is uh, actually fitting for uh, the call that we are in. Um, Eric, uh, Gregory, and, and all the listeners, I would uh, really like to thank you for uh, for being here. Um, I'm uh, back tomorrow uh, at um, uh, 3 o'clock Eastern time, which is roughly 9 o'clock in the evening in Europe, and that is noon in California. Uh, for those who are uh, listening, um, I'm back with Alastair Doyle, uh, which has become a weekly thing that we look back at uh, the week, uh, at the past week. Um, and uh, Eric, I will uh, call you in a Zoom call in a second, but uh, Eric, I would like to uh, thank you very much for taking so much time. And I'm really glad that uh, this all worked. Thanks a lot and uh, stay tuned to, to these podcasts. Bye-bye.